You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed, renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands and upon us. Yet establish, yes, establish the work of our hands. Bless the reading, the hearing, and the acting upon his word. Please be seated. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. Yes, it is a uh, very, very good morning to, uh, it's, always, it's always a great morning when we're worshiping God. Uh, that's the way I see it. It's always a great day to worship Jesus. And that's what makes the day great, is that we're worshiping God together. Um, I'm going to ask us if we can uh, just go to the Lord in prayer uh, one more time as we uh, look into this uh, great psalm. A psalm that actually I've been uh, wanting to preach for a while now. And uh, yeah, the Lord has laid this on my heart. So if we could just uh, go ahead and uh, would you please join me in a word of prayer one more time, please. God, we worship you as the everlasting God. From everlasting to everlasting, you alone are God. Uh, you alone are our dwelling place. God, you are the one true person who deserves worship, who has been faithful to us, who loves us like no other. And Lord, we pray that as we open up your word to us, um, your holy scripture, uh, these precious words, Lord, may these words uh, breathe life, uh, may it cause us to worship you in greater ways and to uh, give us a heart of wisdom so that, Lord, our lives would truly glorify you in every way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've been going through a uh, series on discipleship uh, for several weeks, but uh, as we approach Lent, um, we're going to take a slight break away from the discipleship series and just slow down a little bit. Uh, Lent is a season of slowing down. It is a season in which we can 
take a break, I think, from the normal routines of our life, from the, the busyness of our lives, and to reflect more deeply upon the cross, as well as our own lives in light of the big picture of the gospel. So this is the season to do that. And I wanted us to really focus uh, this morning in particular on this psalm, Psalm chapter 90. Uh, as you look at various psalms, we've been going over psalms, um, interspersing the last few weeks with different psalms. And as you look at the psalms, uh, this has traditionally been the prayer book of the church throughout its history. Uh, the psalms have always been the centerpiece of spiritual renewal for the church. Uh, there are some psalms that are psalms of lament. There are some that are thanksgiving, some that are repentance. Uh, there are some psalms that are messianic in nature. They're uh, very pointed to the future coming Messiah. But when we approach Psalm chapter 90, this is one of those psalms that I think really combines a little bit of everything. Um, it reminds us of the big picture of life. Psalm 90 was written by Moses, the only psalm written by Moses. And therefore, it is the oldest psalm of the Psalter, of the 150 psalms. This psalm was probably written right after the failure of the Israelites to take hold of the promised land that God had promised that he would give them. And Moses, to give you a little bit of background, um, was trained under the greatest civilization of his time as the prince of Egypt. He had every single luxury every educational opportunity, every comfort provided for him. He spent the first 40 years of his life being trained, being tutored, uh, being groomed as a prince of Egypt. He spent the next 40 years of his life in isolation as a shepherd in the wilderness. And then he spent the last 40 years of his life commissioned by God for a very special service to lead his people out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's bondage and rule. And his task would not be easy. He was called to lead a people out of Pharaoh, but his heart was hard. He would not let go of his, his people that easily. Uh, they would go through a series of plagues and uh, tests in the crossing of the Red Sea. Later, uh, Moses would try to lead the people uh, to the promised land. Time and again, uh, we find throughout the Exodus account that the people would constantly grumble. Uh, they would complain. They were tested, thirst, hunger, uh, you name it. And God would provide. He would be merciful. He would answer every single time and he would be gracious to his people. But his people would fail him time and time again in disobedience and unbelief. And the climactic judgment that God would bring upon the nation of Israel would come as they were at Kadesh Barnea, the uh, southern city to the promised land, deployed 12 spies, and 10 of them bring back the report that it's, it's unfeasible, it's impossible, we cannot do it. And all but Joshua and Caleb uh, basically refused to go into this promised land that God had promised. So, 
the judgment that God would bring upon the nation of Israel is that everyone above the age of 20 will eventually perish in the wilderness for the next 40 years as they constantly just wander. Uh, part of the judgment of God. They would just die off, that generation. So Psalm 90 is a psalm in many ways that I think highlights some of the greatest lessons that Moses learned uh, during his life. Moses, as you know, was the man of God. He was the man who was known as the, the one whom God would speak to face to face as with a friend. So he knew God in a very special way, intimately acquainted with the Lord. He saw his power, he's experienced God's abundant goodness, his faithfulness all throughout. Um, he had experienced the very best of the world to, that the world had to offer, and yet he also experienced tremendous isolation. He saw the very worst of people of human nature, and he presided over countless uh, issues that required the utmost wisdom to govern the nation of Israel well. And I believe that if you were to ask Moses, Moses, uh, towards the end of his life, if you were to ask him, so Moses, tell me your, your top five lessons in life, or give me your greatest life lessons as you have been the leader of these two million people and you've seen so many things, uh, what are the things that you've learned the most in life? Well, I believe Psalm 90 would be what he would tell us. Um, th this is his life lesson given to us. And it bears, the psalm really brings to focus, it, 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 come, it, it bears all the great issues of life right into this psalm right here. So with that, I'm just going to share with you a few simple truths out of here that I hope will be of encouragement to us this morning. And the first one that I want you to know as we look at Psalm 90 is this, that first of all, very simply, God is eternal and life is very short. God is eternal and life is short. And I believe that this is the first major thing that Moses is conveying in this psalm. Moses says in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our dwelling place. Moses lived 120 years and he's seen generations, right? The generation that he, that was in Egypt, the generation that was out of it, and even the generation that was about to enter into the promised land. So he's seen multiple generations. And through it all, Moses never really had, well, Besides the, the first part of his life, he never really had a permanent home. And the Israelites certainly never experienced a permanent dwelling place. Right? They were always in captivity. They were always in bondage. And then they were led out of Egypt. And they were basically a refugee people. This was their status. This was their, their identity all throughout. They never had a permanent place to settle down, to call home. And notice that when Moses says, calls upon the Lord, he says that he is not simply a refuge. A refuge is a place of temporary relief, of suffering. But he calls the Lord a dwelling. A dwelling is permanent. A dwelling is a place that you settle your roots in good and bad. But the 
type of dwelling that Moses is talking about is not a physical dwelling. It is God himself that through the good times and through the bad, through all the seasons of life, that our true dwelling is really in God himself. He is the most constant person. He is the most constant truth through all the highs and lows, all the ups and downs of life that we will, ever, that we will go through. He is the one constant source who will always, always be there. And this is what Moses says. And so he goes on in verse 2. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. He uses this imagery of the mountains, the mountains that were brought forth. Why the mountains? Why? Because the mountains are really the most, if you think about it, they're the most lasting, enduring thing in this world, right? I used to go uh, hiking oftentimes in China. Uh, I love, you know, just one of my favorite things to do was to just climb mountains. <laughs> uh, I'm not like, you know, this Everest kind of climber, not, not like that. But um, we had a set of mountains near where we live, and I would just always climb those mountains. And as I climbed these mountains, I used to uh, have these thoughts, you know, as I'm climbing this thing. In some of the mountains in China, there's actually these caves, and these caves were dug. Uh, during World War I um, with the attack of Germany upon China. And so they would, they would carve out these caves, and these caves are pretty, quite impressive. Uh, they, go, they stretch even uh, for like miles, and there's separate compartments and rooms in some of these caves, and it's pretty uh, amazing actually. But as I'm, sit, as I'm on these mountains just kind of, you know, resting and just climbing this thing, I just used to think, wow, um, China itself as a country has gone through such rapid changes um, recently. And, and uh, if you look at the history of the country, and I was just thinking these mountains, though, have always been there. They've always witnessed all the changes, all the dramatic things that this country has gone through. This has been the one constant about this country. And so when Moses describes God, as the one who, before the mountains were brought forth, um, what Moses is saying is that God is the eternal God. Um, he is the one person who sees all of our life, sees all of history. He is the one constant. He remains steadfast. He's, he's steady. He's our, he's our dwelling place. This is what Moses is saying. He's, God is the one from whom we have our life. He's the one who determines your life, my life, from start to finish, all the, all the days, all the breath, every beat of your heart, everything that you will experience in your life, that God already knows. He's established it. He determines it. This is who God is, that we are completely dependent upon God. And in verses 3 to 6, Moses goes on to really just talk about really how frail, how brief, how short life really is. Verses 3 to 6, he says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Or as a watch in the night, you sweep them away with, with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. 
Moses knew that life is very, very short. It's brief. And this psalmist uses, the psalm uses many metaphors to describe how fragile and brief life really is. Moses uses this dust, this idea of dust. And in the Old Testament, Dhaka, uh, this idea of just being pulverized, human life eventually cr- comes to this crushing end in which our bodies really return back to dust, right? A watch in the night. Typically, a watch in the night was only four hours. Just like that. And life is over. A brief flood after a shower that soon dries up. A brief flood. A sleep that seems but just a few minutes long in verse 5. It's just a dream. Like grass that suddenly shoots up and before evening it's already been mowed down. It's already been cut down. Moses led a group of two million Israelites. And in this time span, 40-year period of wandering, as those who are 20 on up, as they would all one by one perish, as they would all die off, he would witness over 1 million funerals in 40 years. That's a lot of funerals. Estimate about 100 funerals a day, if you were to break it down. And he saw one family after another die off. One set, one generation just gradually perish. I came back last night about midnight from San Jose. And I came back from a funeral yesterday. Um, A funeral of one of my dear friends. And this friend of mine, this very dear friend of mine, he was uh, part of our church in San Jose. He was uh, one of our worship leaders. And um, more than that, he was, he was a dear friend, a brother. Uh, he, this man, uh, he, is, he was outspoken. He was brash. He was blunt. You never had to guess what he was thinking or feeling. He wore his emotions on his sleeve. And uh, like Peter, sometimes he spoke at the wrong moments and said the wrong things at the wrong time. But he had one of the biggest hearts of anyone that I knew. Jason was just a few years younger than me in his mid-40s. And he was at the very peak of his life physically. He was into CrossFit. He was an avid cyclist. He was the strongest physically that he's ever been in his life. And right before our men's retreat two weeks ago, uh, he just collapsed after a workout. Sudden heart failure. Completely unexpected. And I got that text uh, during the men's retreat to just pray for him as they put him on life support. They, they took him off uh, life support last weekend. 
And yesterday was a very, very beautiful, beautiful tribute uh, to my friend Jason. Um, the life that he lived and how big his heart was and how generous and how he loved people so well. And he leaves behind his wife and two children, uh, one of whom they recently adopted. And it, it's a reminder to me that, you know, our life is really not in our hands. And um, this is the third funeral just in the past year and a half that I've attended of someone from my generation, from just my age. Someone who went to be with the Lord too soon from our perspective. But as we look at this, um, it's important to recognize Psalm 90. Um, this is a good, good truth that life is unexpected. Life is brief. And even as Moses said, even if you live to 70, 80, what is that? It's over. It just flies away. And, you know, sometimes we don't want to think about death, right? When we think, well, this is, this is kind of depressing or this is sad. But in reality, actually, this is very, very healthy. This is very important. Why? Knowing that our life is very finite and knowing that um, our life is very frail and very limited really displaces any kind of illusion in our lives that we're in control. A lot of times in our minds, we think, well, I'm going to do A, B, C. I'm going to work hard, study hard. I'm going to get into my good college I've been looking for. I'm going to get that job that I've been looking for. I'm going to save up. I'm going to, you know, take my, you know, uh, I'm going to have a family. I'm going to, you know, do my retirement. And this is what my life is going to look like. But you don't know, right? We don't know. And there are many wonderful gifts that we enjoy in this life, many wonderful, wonderful blessings. But we have to entrust everything to God and say, God, um, I am completely, every day that I live, this life is to be lived on purpose for you. You are my God. You are my eternal dwelling place. You're the reason why I live. You're the reason. You're the one that I worship. You alone. It's healthy. It's good that we transfer dependence and reliance away from ourselves and say, God, everything I have is a gift from you. And so my life belongs completely to you from everlasting to everlasting. You are my God. And this is what Moses is telling us. The fact that God is our dwelling place throughout all generations is actually the most assuring truth that we could ever have in our lives. And that was the most beautiful thing about Jason's life too. That he knew God. Or I should say, more importantly, that God knew him. And that he is with him right now. Verses 7 to 11 is this. Moses goes on to say that God is the righteous judge. 
and we are morally accountable people to God. Verses 7 to 11, he says, For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sign. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And once again, as Moses is writing this, uh, we know that this was a generation that, was, that Moses witnessed firsthand that was dying off because of God's judgment. And there are several several ways that Moses describes this, but four times in these next several verses, God, Moses describes God's anger and his wrath. It's mentioned four times that by your wrath we are dismayed, um, that death and disaster and all of these things we know are ultimately the products of sin in this world, and that God is actually bringing about a judgment as well, but sin is this Sin is, comes from our nature, but it's also a choice that we've, we, that we've done against God to disobey, to distrust God. And when you look at verses 7 to 11, it's very clear that God is intensely concerned for the holiness of his people, of the Israelites, and now today for the church, that God takes sin seriously, and that when God disciplines, he disciplines for good. And so as God takes sin seriously, we're to take sin seriously in our life as well. It's, in fact, in verse 8, it says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in light of your presence. Sometimes we think we can get away with things, or we see maybe other people, and we think they've gotten away with it, right? But that's not true. Because it says that all of the things, the, even the secret things that no one else knows, it's brought out in the light of God's presence. God knows. And if you digest this truth, it's both very comforting, actually, and both very hum it's both comforting and humbling. How is it comforting, you say? Well, it's comforting knowing that God is just, right? And in this world, we experience injustice, we experience evil, and we think, how can people get away with this, right? How can people get away with all this, all these wrongs and all this evil? And we know that in the end, that's not true. God is, he sees everything. He's not going to let people just get away with things. But it's very humbling. Why? It's very humbling, too, because we know that we're also guilty, we know that we're guilty of sin and rebellion. We're guilty of having put our will above God's will. How many times have we failed to do the right thing, right? How many times do we know the right thing that we should do, but we don't do those things? And how often we can actually identify with the Israelites. We are like the Israelites. This is us. And so it's humbling it's humbling to come before God, and it's humbling because um, we know that God, God sees and God knows. And God wants to purify us as his bride. But here's the final thing, the, the third thing that I want to show. And this is where the psalm really takes a beautiful turn. 
so far it seems drab and dreary and discouraging. And it's like, wow, that's, that's what I'm being inspired by or whatever. But verses 13 to 17, I want to show you that God gives grace. God gives grace to his people. Verses 13 to 17. He says, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And the final thing that Moses wants us to know, to see in this psalm, is that God is a gracious and compassionate God. In fact, in the next several verses, Moses pleads seven times. There are seven petitions by Moses for grace. And it's all throughout the psalm. And he appeals to God's steadfast love. He's confident that even though they're experiencing this discipline, this judgment from God, he's confident that God is a compassionate God. That he's going to give grace to the people. And if you look at Moses, he's not pleading for more wealth. He's not pleading for more health. He's not pleading for more um, stuff or anything like that. He's, what he's pleading for is, God, have mercy, have compassion. And this is something that, that we have to plead for because we cannot, we cannot earn this. It has to be given by God. It's a gift from God to us. So verse 13 says, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? But he says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And this idea of satisfying us in the morning with your steadfast love, it's, it's used throughout the Old Testament to signify that after this period of judgment, God longs and he gives, he longs to give grace to, to his people. That his mercies are new every single morning. Great is God's faithfulness. God longs to, to forgive. He longs to show his goodness to us. In verse 15, Moses says, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. And though God brings this discipline and judgment, that we see that he desires to show his healing as well. This is who God is. Verse 16 to 17, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of, our, of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses, again, saw and experienced God's amazing deliverance. And again, it's something that they didn't deserve. They could not do on their own. He just saw God's power in his deliverance. And as the Israelites were delivered, God would commission Israel, I want you to be my vessel in this world. I want you to be a light, a blessing to those around you. And of course, we know that Israel didn't, was not able to fulfill that commission by God. And so here, Moses pleads for the Lord, Lord, would you establish the work of our hands? Would you be the one? We cannot do it, but would you establish the work? And so just a couple things I just want to wrap up, okay? And 
I just want to make this quick, but first of all, two things is this. In application, make your brief life count for God's glory. Make your brief life count. The centerpiece of the psalm is verse 12. Verse 12 says, in the midst of between sandwich between the judgment and God's mercy, Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Knowing that life is very short and just goes by enables us to live with true fear of the Lord and true wisdom. Again, some people avoid thinking about death because they think it's too depressing or I've got many years ahead of me or whatever, they, whatever people may think. But actually, what, some in the, what the scripture is telling us is this, that when you think about death and when you think about how short life is, it enables you to live life very, very well in the present. This is biblical wisdom. To think about um, what is the purpose and how is my life stewarded for God's purpose right now. When I think about Jason and his passing, and I think about all the moments that we shared, and, and I think about the last breakfast that we had together in Cerritos, he and his family, I would never have imagined that that would have been the last conversation that I would have with Jason face to face. I would have never imagined that that would be the, the last time that I would see my friend here in this world. And had I known, I would have been, I would have been so much more expressive of my gratitude to him. The impact that he made upon my life. And his friendship. Uh, So, every, op, every life, every opportunity, every friendship, it's precious, right? We don't just go through life. We don't go through days, right? We don't just try to survive. We live with purpose, right? We, every encounter with every person, fellow brother or sister in Christ, a human being, it's lived with this great sense of purpose that we treasure and we value uh, the impact of the people around us in our lives. Teaching us to live life with wisdom, being more grateful, being more humble, being more loving, kind, as God would want us to be. And then the second thing is this, to make Christ your home, your home. Make Jesus your true home. Moses knew God as the eternal God. And Jesus says that I and the Father are one. We are at home with each other. And Moses saw great grace in God, in this God of the Old Testament. But how much more grace, how much more confidence that you and I have as those who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that 
this judgment that fell upon the Israelites, we know that we deserve this judgment. This is you and I. Our hearts, many times very hard, very stubborn. Many times we don't want to listen to God. We want to do our own thing. And yet Christ bore every single punishment that you and I deserve on the cross. This is what Jesus did. He died the death, this undeserved death, so that we could be free. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be spared forever. And so that we could call upon God as our everlasting God, our eternal God. The God who you know, but actually the God who knows you. The God who rescued you. And Jesus told us this, that if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for us. We ask the Lord, Lord, establish the work of our hands. Establish my life. Let it be lived in such a way so that it genuinely points to you as my true hope. That when people encounter my life, that they will say of your life, my life, his life, um, he was a loving person. He pointed people to Jesus, the true hope. Let's pray. Father, we uh, praise you and we thank you, God, that you are our everlasting God. And we thank you, Jesus, that because of you, because of your work of grace on our behalf, Lord, that we have a home. Um, whatever we go through in life, all the ups and downs, Lord, we will never, never lack a true home. Our, our true dwelling is with you, God. So, Lord, um, as we looked at this big picture psalm, Lord, I pray that we would live our life even this day with a new sense of purpose in your presence. Amen.